Thanks, Gary and Cindy. Appreciate you guys coming to share with us. Not just your ministry, but your life as well. We appreciate that. It's good to, good to join together with you in that way. When I think about uh, different people written about in the Bible, uh, sometimes I think about how incredible it would have been to, uh, to have been able to be some of those people and, and really experience some of the things that they experienced. So uh, I think about uh, Moses, for example, leading the people out of the Red Sea or out of Egypt and then through the Red Sea as it parted. I mean, how, how crazy would that have been? Uh, think about John and, and how he received the vision from God that we have in the book of Revelation, what that must have been like. Uh, to have been Sarah, miraculously given a child in your 90s. Um, or, or to have been Mary Magdalene, be set free from having, having seven demons within you. And, and I'm sure you could insert another Bible character of your own choice and, and imagine what an incredible thing they must have experienced. And, and, and when I do that, sometimes I'm, I'm a little jealous of, of the miraculous and awesome experiences that some people got to have in their life. I mean, how, how they must have been able to praise God because of his work in those ways. And, and when I think about that, you know, I, there's at least one person that, that I would say probably doesn't make anyone's top 10 Bible characters I'd like to be for a day list, okay? And that person would be the prophet Jeremiah. Right? It's rather fascinating. Although the, the book of Jeremiah is uh, the second longest book in the Bible, aside from Psalms, I find little in it that makes me, want, makes me desire to be Jeremiah. Uh, the messages he was given to proclaim, the hardships he endured, the way that he was received, really, or the way he was rejected by his own people, they're things that no one would envy. <clears throat> and, you know, his nickname is sometimes called the weeping prophet, if that gives you an idea there. But, but that's where we are this morning. It's the book of Jeremiah that we've come to today. And due to what I just mentioned about the length of the book, about the nature of its message, it's one that I... Can a pastor say this? I wasn't looking forward to it quite as much as some of the other books that I've preached through this summer. But as I've spent time the past couple weeks dwelling on God's words to and through Jeremiah, I'm reminded again that all of the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. And so, as you can see in, in the sermon outline for today, I, in, in Jeremiah, I want to highlight four different revelations about God as, as seen in this book. Now, now, just some quick background on the prophet Jeremiah before we get into his words. Before he was a prophet, Jeremiah was a priest. Okay, it's not, not a bullfrog, and you probably have to be of a certain age to get that, that reference. But <clears throat> Jeremiah was a priest. His, his prophetic ministry then 
uh, went from about 626 to 585 BC, and it covered, covered parts of the reigns of the last five kings of southern Judah. Now, his messages began during the reign of the last good king, Josiah. It was a time in Israel's history when reforms were taking place. Uh, the high places where idol worship happened were purged. Um, the book of the law was rediscovered and it was read and, and its precepts were reapplied in the land. Um, the Passover was kept once again with, with more enthusiasm than it had been since the days of Judges centuries before. So it was a good time to be a man of God in Jerusalem. But those times quickly faded. As soon as King Josiah died, it was one bad king after another who succeeded him. The people re-engaged in their idolatry and injustice. And it all culminated then during the reign of the final king of Judah, King Zedekiah, when Babylon invaded the land, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and, and took many of God's people away to exile in Babylon. And so in the years leading up to that outcome, God warned his people through his prophet about what was to come. He, he, he called them to repentance. He called them to obedience. But, but as we'll see this morning, those, those messages which Jeremiah gave were not heeded. So in essence, the ministry of Jeremiah was to a hard-hearted people who rejected his words, and he lived in a time when the nation was heading toward a metaphorical shipwreck. Jeremiah was the one charged with delivering words that were intended to wake the people from their stubbornness and, and enlighten them to what lie ahead, but but instead, his words uh, just stirred up anger and rejection. And so you can maybe see why I and maybe none of us are rushing to live a day in Jeremiah's shoes. It was a tough calling, and, and, and we'll see some of that this morning. But, but as, we, as we examine Jeremiah's words this morning, I, I want to give a quick caution. I think the temptation when we read a book like this is to see ourselves as the prophet who is called to proclaim truth to those who are rebelling against God. So Jeremiah himself maybe isn't on our top 10 list of biblical characters we'd like to be, but, but when studying this book, I think we're more likely to see ourselves as Jeremiah rather than as the rebellious, stubborn people of Judah but I want to caution us about doing that right away, right off the top. If, if we do that, if we go straight there, we run the risk of focusing on what everyone else is supposed to do in response to God, rather than asking the question, what, what is God telling us about himself? What is, he, what is he calling us to do? How ought we respond to his words? We, we, we must listen to what God says to us before we can think about proclaiming a message to somebody else. And so my hope is that the way I present Jeremiah's message this morning, uh, it, it will help us do that. So, um, so as I said, I'm going to highlight four themes in the book. The first one I want, to, I want to look at today is God's pure passion for his people. Now, now, the book of Jeremiah is a, is a compilation of his messages, and they're not in 
chronological order or even, even strict thematic order. So we're going to have to jump around a little bit this morning as we highlight these themes. But, but I would encourage you to turn with me first to Jeremiah chapter 3. That's page 629 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow there. One of the ways in which we see God's passion for his people is through the descriptions of the people as God's bride and through the descriptions of their idolatry as adultery. So so look with me, Jeremiah chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treachery, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So when we think about a a marriage relationship between a husband and wife, we, we ought to rightly picture a relationship that is both intimate and exclusive. A husband and wife make a commitment to each other and enter into a covenant together where their relationship becomes something that they replicate with no one else. In the case of the wife, all all other men are rejected from that type of relationship. It's reserved for one man, her husband, and then, of course, vice versa for the husband as it pertains to his wife. So, so there is, there's a passion that is meant to exist in that relationship which draws the two together and toward one another. But what we see in these verses is that the people of Israel, although they had entered into a covenant relationship with God, they, they chose to go up to the high places in the land and worship idols and false gods. They committed adultery in their relationship with God by worshiping others rather than God alone. And what we see in the midst of the people acting in that way is is that God's passion for them did not wane. He longed for them to return to him. He said to southern Judah, I was hoping that when you saw what happened to northern Israel, how they were taken in exile, that you would come back. But he said, no, you... You didn't. He, he, he had a passion for them similar to a husband for a bride. He also had a passion for them similar to a shepherd for his sheep. If you look down further in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, um, also the opening verses of chapter 23, God, God speaks of his people as sheep to be gathered and fed and protected. He has this passion for him. Um, turn with me to chapter 7 of Jeremiah. In, uh, in the first 15 verses, God draws attention to the discrepancy between how the people were acting inside of the temple versus outside of the temple. 
So in the temple, they were bringing sacrifices. They, they, they would have looked like people who were pursuing God. But then outside the temple, they were oppressing the weak. They were worshiping idols. They, they stole, they murdered, they committed adultery. Now, if, if God was satisfied with the gifts and offerings that the people were bringing in the temple, if that was all that he desired, then it wouldn't have mattered what was taking place outside the temple. But because God was passionate for a relationship with his people, all of their life mattered, not just what took place inside the temple, but all of it. God would rather destroy the temple. He'd rather it be completely destroyed and the sacrifices stop than lose relationship with his people. And Spoiler alert, that's what he did. He gave the temple over to the destruction at the hands of the Babylonians in order that his people might return to him in relationship. God even sent his people into exile, again, with the hope that they would come back to him. That's why in chapter 29, Jeremiah, God, God told the people that it's not going to be a quick trip to Babylon. Instead, you ought to settle down seek the good of the city because my plans for you are good but they will be brought about only when you call out to me and turn back to me in the midst of that hardship of exile that famous verse jeremiah 29:11 right well, we've heard this probably numerous times for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans for welfare not for evil to give you a future and a hope that was not a promise of ease and comfort. And context is everything here. <laughs> that was a promise of good coming through suffering and exile because it would draw the people back to God. That's what God was promising there. Not an easy life, but one that was going to end up in good because of what they would go through. God was passionate about his people. He longed for them to be close to him and to thrive in their lives. God is passionate about you and me as well. He's so passionate, he'll allow hardship into our lives for the sake of deepening his relationship with us. He's so passionate, he will step into hardship and suffering himself for the sake of deepening his relationship with us. I mean, see the cross as an example of that. God is the groom who pursues his bride, his church, out of his deep love for her. And in his words through Jeremiah, we see him passionately pursuing his people, even though they've rebelled against him. And their exile isn't, isn't an example of him giving up. It's not his passion coming to an end. It's his passion being shown even further because he longs for them to come back. So we can be encouraged by God's passionate pursuit of us in our own context today. The God of Jeremiah is the same God we worship. So that's, that's the first theme that we see throughout the book. The second one I want to highlight is that of God's sure justice. So while God does have a pure passion for his people, he's also fully righteous, fully just. That means that 
sin and evil, even among his beloved, must be justly dealt with. So look with me at chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 5, for kind of a taste of the things which God would justly judge. I'll start reading in verse 23 of chapter 5. It says, But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and their priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? So if the people were curious about why judgment was coming by way of the Babylonians, God spelled it out to them. Rather than rightly fear God, the people were stubborn and rebellious. Wickedness was found among them. They oppressed the helpless for their own gain. Uh, justice was not found in their midst. As we already talked about, God loved his people. He loves his people, but, but in his justice and righteousness, the, the sinful deeds of his people needed to be judged. God is just and so must rightly condemn the people's own unjust deeds. If you look at chapter 25, the, the, the first half of that chapter is, in many ways, a, a summary of all the chapters that came before it. And again, God told the people through Jeremiah that they had rebelled against him, they'd failed to be obedient, and they'd turned to other gods. And so as a result, the people would be sent to exile in Babylon for 70 years. But God's justice isn't seen only toward his own people. It goes farther than that as well. Even though Jeremiah's words are predominantly spoken about God's people, there, there is assurance that God's justice would be evident in Babylon as well. After those 70 years, he says Babylon will face justice, face judgment for its iniquities. Even though Babylon was a tool in the hands of God, Babylon still acted out of its own desires and so would be justly judged for those. Uh, chapters 46 through 51, at the end of the book, they, they are words of warning and judgment spoken about Egypt and Philistia, Moab, uh, Ammon, Edom, Kedar, Hazor, and, and then Babylon once again. So God's justice goes across the whole earth, and it's sure and it's fair. Sin and evil will be judged as they must be. And, and I think we can summarize this theme by looking at chapter 14, verse 10. 
And this is what it says. Thus says the Lord concerning this people. They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Now I know that as people who have faith in Jesus and who live under the new covenant, we are quick to quote another line from Jeremiah about God forgiving iniquities and remembering sins no more. But we're not to that point in the sermon just yet. Okay, in, 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 our, in our understandable desire to get to that good news of the gospel of Jesus, we must not minimize the sure justice of God towards sin. Can't skip over that. Like the people in the time of Jeremiah, we too are born with a stubborn, rebellious, sinful nature. We're just as guilty and deserving of judgment as God's people then. Uh, there's many in our society, and, and you, you'll, you'll either hear this overtly or you'll see people functioning in this way sometimes that, that believes that if people are, people are generally good and they will naturally flourish if just the right laws and systems are in place and if they're just given the right opportunity, but that's not the case. It, it just isn't. Our sinful nature is pervasive within us from birth, and we will never become righteous and pure on our own. It can't happen. All we do is earn judgment for our sin. And because God is just, our sin will be judged. And so we see that theme in the book of Jeremiah as well, his sure justice. Now the good news is coming, but it's the fourth theme, so we're going to have to do one more before we get there. All right, The third theme that we see in the book of Jeremiah pertains to God's difficult calling. Now, I know there's, there's a part of me that wants to believe that if I'm faithful to God and obedient to his leading in my life, then everything is going to go smoothly and I will not face any suffering in this life, or at least nothing serious, right? Uh, the health and wealth gospel, the false health and wealth gospel survives on that assumption that if we're just obedient to God and we do what we're supposed to do, then things are going to work out how we want them to work out. But the reality, as clearly seen in the life of Jeremiah, is something very different from that. God's calling in our lives, should we follow it, might prove to be a difficult one to follow. For as, for as thrilled as Jeremiah must have been in chapter 1, when God called him to be a prophet, that excitement was probably quickly tempered by God's statements that the message was one of impending destruction, which the people would reject. Oh, oh, by the way, along with rejecting you, Jeremiah. And that's a great way to start out a prophetic ministry, isn't it? As we see in the book, there's so many examples. Chapter 20, a, a fellow priest named Pashur beat Jeremiah and put him in stocks because of the message that Jeremiah proclaimed. Uh, chapter 26, Jeremiah spoke a message in the temple after which he was surrounded by the priests and the prophets and all the people who wanted to kill him. Uh, chapter 28, there was another prophet named Hananiah who just flat out opposed Jeremiah's message. Uh, chapter 36, the scroll containing Jeremiah's messages, which, which had no doubt been painstakingly produced. You don't just print it on the machine back then. I mean, it was handwritten. That scroll was cut apart piece by piece and thrown into the fire as it was read to uh, King Jeho uh, Jehoiakim. 
I mean, can you imagine all that work and just little by little thrown into the fire? Chapter 37, Jeremiah was thrown into prison for stating that Babylon would be victorious over Jerusalem. Chapter 38, he's thrown into a cistern for the same message. Chapter 43, even, even though uh, after Babylon invaded and took people into exile, Jeremiah was allowed to stay in Jerusalem, but he was later forcibly taken by his own people to Egypt for fear of Babylon, even though Jeremiah specifically told the people, God said, don't go to Egypt. But the people said, no, we're going to go and we're going to drag you there with us anyway. But it wasn't just the physical things that happened to Jeremiah. Uh, at the end of chapter 8, beginning of, beginning of chapter 9, we, we see the emotional toll it took on Jeremiah as he was wrestling with the fact that his own people whom he loved kept rejecting God and God's words to them. In chapter 12, we see Jeremiah admit that he, he's confused at what God is doing. He doesn't understand all the messages that he's proclaiming. So we ought not think that obedience to God is by default all sunshine and roses. Jeremiah knew firsthand what it was to suffer for being faithful. Anyone trying to sell the prosperity gospel to him wasn't going to find a buyer. Because he, he, I mean... All we got to do is look at his life. Obedience to God's leading in our own lives might not be all sunshine and roses. There will be difficult moments, difficult things that God leads us to do. But let's obediently follow God anyway, knowing that he will provide. That's something else that we see in the life of Jeremiah. Even in the midst of this hardship and suffering that he faced, God provided for him again and again. When God calls and when God leads, let's not be too worried about the difficulty of the task. God can be trusted. God will provide in the midst of that. And now we get to the final theme. This theme of God's promised restoration. Even though many of Jeremiah's messages are difficult warnings, there are hopeful promises in the midst of them. So listen to one of them in chapter 16, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So, so yes, Babylon was bringing judgment from God and exile was coming, but there was hope. And it was such a great hope that, that God would come to be known as the one who brought his people back from, from exile, even more than he was known as the one who brought his people up out of slavery in Egypt. That's, it's hard to overstate the great hope of that because that's how God was known to the Jews. This is the God who brought our people out of slavery in Egypt, that incredible work in the time of Moses. God says, I'm going to do something even better, and I'm going to be known as the God who brought you back from exile. There's great hope in that. Uh, chapter 24, verse 4, more words of hope, says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like those good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. 
I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And we hear the passion of God for his people coming through again in that, don't we? We hear, we hear his desire to have a restored relationship with them. And God promises it's going to happen again on the other side of the exile. That's coming. That is his promise. And then within the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33 are kind of the greatest concentration of hope in the book. And it's in the middle of that section that Jeremiah speaks these great words which are later quoted in Hebrews chapter 8 that we read earlier this morning in connection with Jesus. Let me read Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." So the covenant which the people of Jeremiah's time had with God had been broken. They'd violated the terms of it, and, and as a result, God would remember their iniquity and punish them. It was what the terms of that first covenant demanded. But the days were coming when a new covenant would be in effect. And it wouldn't be like the old one. It, it would be written on the hearts of God's people. It would lead the people to truly know God from the least of them to the greatest. And because of that new covenant, God would forgive his people's sins and remember them no more. All the things taking place about which Jeremiah prophesied, they, they were leading to that promised restoration, and it came about through Jesus. He fulfilled all of that. At the first coming of Jesus, through his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from, from the dead, those promises were secured. They were fulfilled. A new covenant was enacted. It's not one that's centered on a, on a physical temple or animal sacrifices. It was a covenant that centered on God's becoming human and sacrificing himself. God's sure justice upon the sin of his people was satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus. And then because of that, God's pure passion for his people is able to be satisfied through a restored, intimate relationship with them. That happened at the first coming of Jesus. It continues to happen when you and I and others in our world put our faith in Jesus today. And then at Jesus' second coming, that new covenant will be shown in all its fullness across all creation for all eternity. You know, as I said earlier, when, when 
when reading the book of Jeremiah, we have to fight that urge to immediately go out and, and proclaim judgment upon sin to, to everyone else. There's a time and a place to proclaim just judgment upon sin, no doubt. It needs to be known. But this book is filled with messages that were spoken first and foremost to God's people. And so, as a result, we must first ask what God is revealing to us about himself and about ourselves through his word. That, that's how the word of God works often. It's a window to see God and understand God, but it's also a mirror that shows us who we are. Now, now you know, the four themes that, that I highlighted this morning, they could easily all be their own sermon. There's enough there to make each one its own. And I think maybe a, a good question to ask ourselves this morning to end with might be, what, which of the four themes do I most need to hear and receive? Is it the wonder of God's passion for his people? Do I, do I need to be floored by that today? Is it the seriousness of God's justice towards sin? Is it the reality of God's call to be obedient, a reality that, that may include hardship and suffering? Is it the hope of God's promised restoration? Which one this morning do I most need to hear? I think that's a good question to ask. And, and we're going to end just a bit differently this morning. So the worship band is going to come back up now and, and we're going to start right into a song. Um, but instead of singing, singing with us right away, I, I encourage you to, to remain seated and, and reflect and think about that one theme that the Holy Spirit is most strongly implanting on your heart this morning. Take time to, to reflect and, and converse with God about that. Allow him to speak through his words, which we've studied this morning. So I would encourage you to do that as we start singing. And then after a little while, we will invite you to stand and uh, sing with us together as we close our, uh, close our service, worshiping through song.